This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by The Wisdom of Hobbits, by me, Matthew J. DiStefano. In this hopeful yet at times poignant homage, I focus on everyone's favorite halfling friend, the Hobbit. A charming people, this Shire-based race has captivated, enthralled, and enchanted the hearts and minds of millions. And though they're not a religious society, I argue that spiritual truths, love, kindness, generosity, hope, and even compassion can be found within their familiar yet still relevant and didactic tales. So come and enter a world of adventure and intrigue. Whether it's your first foray into Middle Earth or the Shire is your second home, allow me to inspire you toward discovering your own inner hobbit. Available now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your fine, fine books. From Choir Publishing. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, my name is Nat. I'm with my brother, John, who is nestled up in the uh, the mountains of Northern California, lamenting all the snow he's getting. What a baby. I'm, it's 91 degrees in Texas, man, and you're whining about two inches of snow. What a baby. Well, it's because, you know that, that you know, Greta and I moved up here for exact opposite reasons, right? Greta well, loves she, the she snow. She went for the snow and you went she for the hot. And I, am the, I am the happiest when I am on the verge of being miserably hot. See, that just sounds like that a, is when I find that's when I that's when I feel the most comfortable. That sounds like a character flaw. I don't understand that. Probably that's a personal problem. Like that, like that's why that's, that's why God invented air conditioning so I could stay indoors for the eight months of summer in Texas and go. You know what? I'm not going back out. But anyway, I digress. This is the this is the podcast, by the way. That if you've clicked the button, I assume you know what it is. But just in case you don't know, uh, this is not church. Because if it was church, you'd have left by now. John and I would be right there with you, walking out the door going, screw this, man. But please, before you leave, make sure and put your 10% tithe in the giving box at the back. <laughs> we wouldn't want to miss an opportunity for you to sow into our ministries. I wouldn't want you to miss out on a blessing, is really what I'm saying. So, <laughs> Wow. That's like eight day, phrases in two sentences. That's well done, sir. I was trying. I'm, I'm shooting for 10. Ten, uh, I don't You're think close. I've ever scored higher than 10 in a minute. So You can just say something like, yeah, because you know, we're here for you and we're concerned about your walk. That's right. Your and walk? and we want to offer all of our thoughts and all of our prayers. And well, you can just say that we're believing We're believing on faith for those other two. We got yes. to eight. We're we got believing to eight, but I'm believing for those other two. And that's worth, and that's worth two and, you, and then we're done. <laughs> that's, like a, that's, that's like a triple word score in Scrabble, man. That's great. <laughs> I'm good all at right. this game. All right. This is why you're a writer. Hey, by the way, this is our guest who's chiming in. And I'm going to tell you a little bit about Justin McRoberts here real quick. And then we're going to let him take us on a journey, talk about his new book and see what else is going on in his world. So Justin McRoberts is an author, a coach, a speaker, and a songwriter. He is the author of six books, including the upcoming Sacred Strides, which will, will be released in May of 2023. I believe May 30th. So hopefully if you're listening to this now, that means the book is either about to be released or has just been released. So you might want to hit pause and just go buy the book. So then you can you can come back and then listen to the rest of this. But, you know, we want to make sure that you support Justin, man. So for over 20 years, Justin has helped artists, ministers, and entrepreneurs find their way. From the stage, through his stories and books, or during coaching sessions, he leans on his years of work and, exp- and expertise as a minister and artist to help individuals and teams solve problems in their creative processes. When he's not writing, speaking, or coaching, you can find him as the host of At Sea Podcast, and he lives in the East San Francisco Bay Area, uh, which is one of my favorite places in the world, man. I do love the Bay Area. I'm not sure about East Bay, but I do love the Bay Area. It's, it's all good. So what, what part of the East Bay are you in? 
I'm in a town called Martinez. So if you head east out of San Francisco, you cross the bridge into Oakland, then take a hard left and head north. Martinez is one of these little, like, thrice-busted industrial towns. Mm. Uh, just kind of, we fought Starbucks off for, like, 15, 17 years <laughs> uh, because we wanted to come up with our own thing and eventually did. And it's one of those towns that's, like, it is, it is trying to hold on to in the best way uh, what we have been for many, many years. So it's 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 a part of Northern California that doesn't feel like the cool kid part of Northern California, which is nice. why. I like okay, it. well, maybe I misspoke. Maybe that is my favorite part of Northern, Northern it is. California. This is your uh, favorite town. I did, live in your you, favorite town. Did you ever relent and get a Starbucks? Please tell me you you, you held off. Oh no, there's the the coffee shop downtown is called States, and it's it is a Martesian classic. It is uh, a beautiful spot, and it is better than Starbucks by a billion degrees. Nice, nice. As a as a as a coffee shop owner myself, and as a co- I'm a coffee roaster, and I, uh, my wife and I own a coffee shop in Texas. Uh, thank you for not supporting Starbucks and their shitty, shitty coffee and their really, really <laughs> exploitative <laughs> way of doing business. Not just in America, but around the world with the people that they yes, screw yes. over. So, right, that, not that man. I have an opinion or anything about that. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's you know the bad coffee is one thing. All right, I can excuse bad coffee to a point, but some of their business practices are just they're just abhorrent, you know. So, yeah, yeah. But anyway, all, all of that being said, coffee is a is a passion of mine. So glad to glad to hear that you share that. So, if you wouldn't mind, um, one of John's and my sort of jumping off questions for folks, since this is ostensibly a, uh, a faith based podcast, even though it sometimes doesn't seem like it. But anyway, just to kind of kind of get people's background story, maybe their little little bit little piece of their faith journey, and give us a place to jump off with. What do you think? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, let's, let's reverse engineer. So, so I spend most of my time now working with teams and individuals, mostly individuals, developing their pathway that like folks who are, most of these folks are people of faith, they're ministers, they're artists, uh, and they're trying to figure out a way forward from here. A lot of those folks are coming from the same place I came from, which is a relatively disappointed trust and dependency on the machinery that we had built for ourselves previously. So I pastored a church for about 20 years. Happy I did. We built a good thing, uh, but not all good things are intended to last. And so a lot of what I spend my time doing now as a coach and as an author, which is probably write the book, is that the stuff we build, we build for good reasons. The the machinery we you know, we construct, we do because we were inspired. And then we just hold on to the machinery too long. I trust the thing that we're inspired by. I trust that there is there's a there is something happening beneath the surface most of the time. And that our intuitions, that our guts kind of sense that thing, and then we build stuff as best we can, and then we hold on to it too long. So I'm so I am not an anti-institutionalist. I I am a fan of the institutions because we're always gonna build them. And sometimes they're the best of what we can do. But at every corner that we do that, we're a lot like Peter on the top of the hill in the moment of the transfiguration. He's like, hey, let's, <laughs> we just saw some really cool stuff. Lord, let's build some shit. And the Lord's like, no, you don't understand. Like, I don't want you to even talk about this yet. So I try to meet people where they're at with regards to their inspirations, their drives, their desires. I used to do that by contributing to and building institutional settings. And now I just kind of meet people wherever they are in the disparate space uh, that folks live in. 
Love it. Love it. Do you have sort of an evangelical background? Are you uh, like, a, like a traditionalist? Or are you like John and I kind of grew up in that sort of neo, what we do, uh, like sort of, of, what's the word I'm looking for, John? Uh, that Well, we grew up in a, uh, like a, well, I mean. In the woo-woo stuff. Okay. What's that called? Charismatic. Thank you. God. Charismatic. Ugh. Yeah, you know, on, on the it's so long you forgot in the co- <laughs> right. Well, in the coattails of the Jesus movement, right into the charismatic movement is 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 what we were raised in. Yeah, so I came to a practical knowledge of the practice of faith through a young life, and still a huge fan. I love the emphasis on just the person of Jesus, as opposed to the trappings. But my previous knowledge was like my mom had grown up Catholic. She would talk about faith things. It wasn't like a faith-oriented household. Like there was a Bible in the house somewhere. Like sure. that was kind of <laughs> yeah. our faith orientation as a, as a family. There's probably a Bible in here. But by the time I was 17, 18, I was paying attention to this guy who was a young life leader. And I liked the way he lived his life. I liked the way he spent his money. I liked the way he attended to other people. I liked the way he paid attention to me. And I figured whatever that was, I wanted that. He said it was Jesus, and he was a Young Life leader. So my association with Young Life was dominantly because this guy who I saw Jesus in, or kind of like saw Jesus as, was a Young Life guy. And he was really great even early on making sure that I knew the difference between the two. Like, he's a Young Life leader because it's a job. But his thing was Jesus. And so, and I guess I'm a Young Life guy. Okay, fair enough. In, in that way, still a huge fan, still love the organization, but I also know its limits. No, and I agree. I, I, I sort of resonate with what you said about institutions that, that hang on for too long. If I have a knock, you know, and I, I, I would probably come at this from an opposite side. I'm actually kind of an anti-institutional guy. And mostly just because I think I've seen the results of those institutions trying so hard and so desperately to concretize everything. And that's, that, that to me is... I might be have I might have a different connotation for institutional than some, but for me that is like it's the moment when these things stop caring about truth and they stop caring about any kind of expansion or knowledge or learning. They just go, no, this is what it is. We know what it is, and now we stay here. Certainty. The moment you're building things on certainty, you're trapped. Yeah, I I have had this thought for a while that you know Christianity begins its life as a fairly nomadic faith amongst a fairly nomadic people. I think there's, I think there's some, some utility in that because I think faith can't ever, uh, it, just, it just can't ever rest on its laurels. I mean, there has to, there has to be a certain amount of restlessness to all of it, I think all the time. And okay. so that, that's maybe, maybe that's, that's where we should put our, our energies in the future. But anyway, all that being said, I, I love it so far. So good, man. So uh, if you could, maybe just give us the, the Cliff Notes version. What's the, what's the book dealing with? I know we, we covered kind of a large chunk of stuff. So maybe just give us an idea. That'd be great. Yeah. My natural posture as a person is not rest. My natural posture as a person also isn't work. In other words, like my, my most natural way of being in the world is not to be at rest, nor is my most natural posture of being in the world to be at, at work or rest. It's to be loved. That is my most natural posture of being in the world is to be loved. And that both work and rest are expressions of and practices of divine love. So the book tries to, with the book, I try to kind of split the difference between, not only split the difference, kind of like inject into the tension between the hustle culture, of which I'm a fan. Like, I get it. Like, get off your ass, go make something of yourself. Like, go. 
and the contemplative culture that says divorce yourself emotionally from productivity, that you're not what you make. Both things are true. And both things are true insofar as they participate with the deep undergirding of the belovedness of, uh, of, uh, of God's love for me. If I'm working well in the world, I'm working from a place of a knowledge of my belovedness. And if I'm resting deeply, I'm resting deeply because I know that I'm loved. So the book is an attempt to create and point out the tension between those two practices of work and rest as like as a narrative. So it's 15, 16 stories of me in both postures, work and rest, and examining belovedness in both. Well, and you do a really good job of differentiating also between work and a job. Yes. Um, so I think a lot of people will always consider their job and work the same. Right. And you and you do a really good job of saying, well, they can be. Can be. You, if if you're lucky, so you know, if you're lucky, your job is something that you love and that becomes what you the work that you do. But for most of us, the job is how we make a living, how we pay our mortgage, how we buy groceries, and then our work is something else. Be yeah. it like doing this podcast, right? This isn't this isn't my job. But this is something I work to do, work at doing, right? Yeah, the, the, in other words, I'm looking for the the way I actually write it in the book. But the, you know, the work is is like the my life's expression of divine love. Like that's what my what my work is. Like, what do you want to do? If someone's at, like, and, and it's hard to ask this in different phases of life. I literally just had a coaching conversation with someone about an hour and a half ago about like asking kids in their 20s about their passions. And it's like, well, yeah, it's not yeah. a bad question to ask. Just hold that answer loosely because he's probably- Yeah, yeah really, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I thought I was smart as hell when I was 25. Turns out I was a dipshit, which is fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool, like be a dipshit for a while and, and make all them mistakes while you don't own anything. But you know, my work is like, if you were to ask someone like, what do you want to do? Like, what's, what's the thing that like drives you? And folks would say like, like, no joke, feel like I want to work with animals. I want to work with, I want to work with, uh, folks who don't have homes. I want to, uh, you know, I want to, I want to build faith communities. Like if like that thing, whatever the thing is, and it could be all kinds of different stuff. I want to, I want to help people make money in ethical ways that work, that's a, that, that driving thing in you. Like, this is what I want to spend my life doing. Cause at some point I'm going to die. And when I'm dead, I want to, when I'm, before I'm dead, I want to look back and, and be glad at how I spent the time and the energy and the resources I have. That's my life's work. Yeah. A job literally is just like, what do you do? Because there are other people who need money from you. How are you going to get that money? That's it. That's all a job is. It's like a way to get money so you can pay for your life. And part of that is how do you have money so you can do the work you want to do in the world? And you're right, man. People like confuse those two things. And that's part of how cats end up in their like 50s and 60s, burnt out, pissed at Jesus, pissed at themselves, four times divorced. Kids don't like them because they're, they've got their job and their work all tangled up and they're deeply unhappy and they have been for 26 years. Well, it's also, it stems from, at least for me, and I think Nat would agree with this. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> from this Sorry, work just... ethic that we got from our parents, our grandparents, right? So specifically, you know, I, I hate throwing gender roles around, but you know, in the age that I was, that I grew up in, it was very specific that the man had to go and get a job. Yep. And he showed his ability to be a good person yep. and efficient and liked 
and going to be a good provider by how much he was willing to pour himself into his job. Yep. Yeah, and you can hear, and you, I mean, the, the the confusion there, the cultural confusion, and there's a whole other part of here in terms of, you know, the there are dark forces in the world, institutional and otherwise, that don't want you to live fully alive. The, if I confuse my job with my work, part of what I do is like my work then in the world is to provide for my family financially. If that's what my work in the world is, uh, and that's, you get this in the book, I mean, tell a little bit of my father's story, like, that's part of why he ends his own life is because his work in the world was to provide in a really specific way financially. That wasn't his work in the world because his work in the world is predicated on his ability to love people. And I, like we could have lived in a smaller place, fine. Not like we had a big place. We could have lived in a, we could have lived in a trailer. We could have lived like, we I, I, like, but having my dad around was the ball game. But for him, he had confused his job, his ability to make money with his work. That's his primary responsibility. It's so vitally important. I'm with you with regards to gender roles and I'll push back on all the pushback there is in culture right now. It is harder for men that this, the pressure to hold shit together financially in a really specific way legitimately steals souls from men left and right all over America uh, because they confuse what they're supposed to be doing in the world as uh, uh, as as beloved humans with their ability to pay bills, man, it kills cats all the time. Yeah. And I'm no, no joke. 100% no joke. against. It, it strikes me though too, as, even, as, even as we're talking, and I'm, I don't know that I've ever thought about these things in this particular way. So this is good, but sort of thought exercise for me has been: I have had an opportunity in, in my life to have a job and just make money and be sort of dispassionate about that. And then still have interests outside of that and work that drove me. And then at one point, those two things converged. And I suddenly felt like I, like I won the lottery. I was going to be able to do for a living what my passion was. And it sucked. It turned the thing that I loved into a job. And it, and with it, all of the pressures that you associate with a job. And it sucked every ounce of joy out of that thing. And my, my, my life stream was to find a way to make money playing music. And I'm like, and I did it. And six months into it, and then I it killed the rock and roll. Dude. I wanted out so fast, and I got out. I mean, I, I, it, yeah. so some some and I, and again, I don't. That's that. That can't be everyone's story. No, I bet it is some people's stories. It is, well, it's a lot of people's story. I mean, there's, a, there's a story in the book I'll, I tell about getting pretty deep into my work, uh, my job, a career as a, as an artist, musician. I was tired. Like I was, and I was tired because I was working. And you know, if you try to make a living as a musician, like folks are like, oh, cool. Like that, what, you know, how yeah, that must be a whole lot of fun. You're like, bro, you have no idea how many yes. hours I'm putting in. I'm so at the time I'm putting in like 60 to 80 hours a week on the regular all the time. I'm booking my own shows. I'm playing the shows. I'm traveling. Traveling can be fun, but like if you're doing, seven, eight hour drives over the course of a month. Like it's bad for your body. It's bad for your mental health. So like, I'm exhausted. I'm wiped out. And I go <laughs> and my wife's like, Hey, you know, we're, we're both tired. I just read this excerpt from this, this book. You should read this excerpt. I'm like, I don't have time to read the excerpt because I'm busy. I'm working. I don't have time. I don't even, I don't have the excerpt. I don't have the, she, I'm like, tell me of the excerpt. She's like, it's a book about rest. And it's a guy named Mark Buchanan, the book is called The Rest of God, Restoring Your Soul by Restoring the Sabbath. It's like, hey, cool, whatever. Tell me about it. What is it? She's, she's like, this is the rundown. It's like, great. Sounds neat. She's like, I'm going to order the book. So she orders the book. 
she reads the book and she's like, this is our jam. Like, we have to read this. You need to read this book. I'm like, I'm not going to read the book. What's give me the, give me the cliff notes. And uh, she gives me the cliff notes and I was like, oh, that sounds, that sounds interesting. Like, I don't know how you, I don't know how someone takes 52 days a, a, a year off the calendar to Sabbath, but it sounds absolutely ridiculous. I'm trying to make a living as a musician. There's not a chance in hell. So I, so she maps out this time. She's like, okay, here's what we're going to do. If you're not going to read the book, then we're going to practice this thing. So she, she points at a date like seven weeks out. She's like, here's this, here's this day, seven weeks out. This is a Saturday, I think. And we're going to practice the Sabbath on the Sabbath. We're going to rest because we're both tired. It's like, great, cool. The next day I get a call from my buddy in Kansas City. He's like, are you available this weekend? And it's the same weekend. I'm like, yes, I'm available. So I go to my wife. I'm like, sorry, I can't do the Sabbath thing you want to do because I just took a job because it's more important because I'm a man because I'm going to make, I have to, like, I'm going to pay for the damn house we just bought. Like, I got to work. Like, come on, babe. Like, I'm like, so <laughs> take the job. And she's like, what's the job? I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to Kansas City and do this weekend thing with this guy at his church. Like, what's the thing? I don't know. So I message him. I'm like, just so I can prep, what's the what's the theme? He's like, yeah. So I just read this book by a guy named Mark Buchanan. It's called The Rest of God. We're <laughs> doing the Sabbath. He's like, we're doing a whole weekend of events around rest and Sabbath. I was like, shut so, <laughs> so he's like, I'll send you the book. I'm like, yeah, send me the book. So he sends me the book. I do not read the book. <laughs> like, I don't, even, don't even come close. Like I read like the back, like the last, like the last two pages, and like the and then the, the back just so I can get enough of a gist of the thing. <laughs> fly out to Kansas City I do a weekend of like events speaking and playing music do the thing Dan who's the pastor of the church invited me I was like bro you're toasty like you're you're not okay I'm like I'm good like like this is just part of being an adult was being tired he's like why don't you stay like instead of leaving tomorrow on Monday stay for two days Monday, Tuesday and just rest do the stuff you're, you know practice what you're preaching I was like okay cool I'll do that that evening, I get a text from my buddy, Kirk, who lives in, who lives in Nashville. He's like, dude, are you available this week? I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> can you be here tomorrow? I said, yes, I can. So I go to Dan, I'm like, bro, I'm so sorry. I cannot do the thing you're asking me to do because I go to Nashville. I go to this gig. He's like, what's the gig? I'm like, I don't even know. It's a gig. I got to make money. I got to take care of my business. At the airport, I text Kirk, who lives in Nashville. I'm like, what's this thing I'm coming to? He's like, yeah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, so it's a retreat for artists. And we just lost our song leader. And so we don't want to hire someone from in town because it's for these guys. Like, oh, it totally makes sense. What's the retreat? Watch this. He goes, yeah. So we just flew this author in. His name is Mark Buchanan. He wrote this book <laughs> called The Rest of the God, Restoring Your Soul by Shut. So this over, but it's super not. So I get to Nashville and I show up and I get to the retreat center. And I walk in and the guy they had originally hired is there in the room. I was like, what are you doing here? He's like, no, bro, what are you doing here? I'm like, I heard you couldn't make it, which is why I'm here. He goes, I didn't say anything to anyone about not being able to be here. So I don't know why you're here. So now I'm in the room with the guy who wrote the book that's been chasing my ass down for six and a half months. And the first thing he says, which goes to your point, he says, I'm gonna assume if you're in this room and you're an artist, you love what you do and everyone nods. And he says this, he goes, if you wanna learn to love what you do and do what you love in the long run, you have to learn to not do it. And everyone's heart was like, shit. He said, the, the most burned out people I know are people who love what they do and do what they love because it takes over their lives and then they start to resent this beloved thing and that's a really dark place to be is to resent the things and the people you love. And yeah, like, for, sure. for two days, I was like unpacked by that. 
Yeah. So, I, dude, I'm with you. Like the like knowing the difference between my job and my work, understanding the rhythm and the tension between work and rest, it literally saves me from corrupting my own passions so that I can do the shit that I love to do and not kill myself or kill the thing itself. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost, for me now, it feels like something I have to protect. You know, it's almost like something I can't, I can't monetize. Now, tomorrow, if somebody offered me a job, I'd probably say, okay, no, no, I'm kidding. But it, it, almost, it almost feels like, like, for me, having a job that I am completely, I'm good at my job. You know, and 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 it, and I earn a decent living, and I can take care of my family. But I can also go home at night, and I don't think about that thing anymore. And if I need to take a week off and not do that thing, I it doesn't bother me. So I'm I'm completely dispassionate about the job, but the work I do, you know, the writing that I do, and the podcast that John and I produce, and the the projects we're involved in on the side that we're super passionate about. And we would do all, we, I say we would do, we are doing all of that for free. That has, that, that, that doesn't even enter into the equation for us. At least it hasn't yet. Of course, no one's throwing piles of money at us. And so maybe, you know, I'm willing to be tempted, by the way. If somebody <laughs> wants to, if somebody wants to, you know, just throw shit tons of money at me and be like, uh, now what? Well, now I'll take your money and I'll, I'll deal with the consequences later. But, but no, I love, I, I love that. Uh, and I, I do love the story of being chased down by that thing. But one thing I'll tell you, John, John, tell me if you agree with this. Being raised by a dad who was not a workaholic, really. He had a, he had a tremendous work ethic, has a tremendous work ethic, but, he had so he had so many interests outside of work, you know. He he he's a writer, so there was many many hours he spent locked behind a door with the clackety clack of his tip of his typewriter, and then go, well, "Don't bother, Daddy's writing." Awesome. And and it wasn't that he was inaccessible all the time, but there were things he was pursuing outside of work that when he quit working, I didn't for one second worry. Oh man, what's Dad going to do now? Oh yeah, like, yeah. Like like yeah. is he going to have things? He's like, oh man, I don't think Dad's. Thought about work two seconds since he retired. He's just been living his best life doing his thing. Yeah, I mean, you know? I, I've joked, you know, I've joked with both uh, my mom and my dad, or our mom and our dad, about uh, it, it's actually harder to find my dad now <laughs> than it was when he was working. Because, you know, yeah. the job he had was somewhat routine. I knew kind of when he started, where he was. He was, he was a, deli- a delivery driver, so, and he did most of his deliveries out of town. But even that being said, if I really needed to find him, I could. Now that he's retired and he's doing what he wants to do on any given day, I, I have no idea where he is, <laughs> which is great. I mean, well, except every morning at that one restaurant he eats. Oh every yeah, day. oh yeah, he eats so, every morning at the same restaurant. Guy. Yeah, but and then multiple times a day for lunch as well. Um, he's a weird dude, man. But for <laughs> me, the, the the part I had to I had to learn how to like not idolize and not hero worship was so our dad uh, had cancer. So he went through radiation for his cancer. My dad did not stop working. My dad worked through all of that. I think he missed like two days while That's going through crazy. radiation and, and uh, you know therapy, uh, um, hormone therapy and radiation to deal with his cancer because he had prostate cancer. Found out he had kidney cancer. Okay, so he did he did miss a few days because he had to have surgery to remove the kidney that had the cancer. But after that, he went through radiation and like he was. Yeah, and he was working through that whole thing. And so in the back of my mind, it's like, I can't complain about having to get up at nine o'clock in the morning and go to my daily job because look what dad did. But I had to get to the point where that was him. That was, that was his ethic. That was his, that's, that's what 
That's what motivated him to get up and go to work. Um, and that's not a bad, that's not a bad thing. No, that work no. ethic is like. Right. But I had, I had to divorce myself. I had to divorce this idea of idolizing that and just realizing that there are going to be times when I can't do that. And I'm not a bad person because I can't do that. Yeah. And that's, and, and you draw the line there in the, in the right place. And so far as like, if you make, and this is why, like, this is why I'm talking about like the tension between, between like hustle and work culture versus like contemplative religious culture, you can idolize both things. Like the one thing becomes, this is the preeminent, or this is like the dominant element of being a human. And, and like, no, it's not. Like working your ass off and being able to is an incredible, wonderful feature and characteristic of a person. And so far as that's a characteristic of the same thing, my dad and my own work ethic, I love that about me. I let it, if you hand me the ball, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to run as hard as I can and do everything I possibly can. Give me the ball. 100%. I love that about myself. I don't want to idol I don't want to idolize that. I don't want to make that like that's what that's who I am, but I'm I love that's that's true about me. In the same way like I can now divorce myself from work and just get quiet. I can I can when I flip the switch off now and this wasn't true before, when I flip the switch off now and I'm done with work, like I'm done. And my kids know like dad's available. And like, he's not going to cut out and he's not going to be checking his damn phone or like, like, no, he's like, he's with us. And I like, and I like that I can divorce myself from work and just be in a posture of play and rest. But I could also idolize that and be like, oh, I'm the dad, who's, I'm the dad who's always present. And then you got these dads who like, they're always present and, and like shit's falling apart all over their lives. And you're like, bro, you need to be present to the checkbook a little bit too. So like if you idolize an aspect or an element of who you are, you miss on the wholeness of who you are, which is held together by the belovedness of Christ. Like you're a whole person and both work and rest participate in that love of God. It's not the one versus the other. And idolatry steals that from us. Yeah. And I'm going to go back to a gender role for just a second because I feel like I don't, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what we're, what I'm talking about or what you're talking about when we talk about gender roles. So within this, and I'm, I'm talking about for me, like in the early seventies, right? So for my parents to be like the, the, the fifties, right? Where there were very specific gender roles. And so for us to ignore what women also went through as a gender role does them a disservice because there are, there are multiple stories, right, of women who never fit in, in this is huge air quotes, uh, the gender role of the, the, the doting mother, home, homemaker. And so they were really shit upon because they, you know, they, they might be a single mom in a time that really didn't, didn't, ex, didn't allow that to be even something we talked about. And so they had to take on a role of, the father figure and the mother figure, they had to go out and get a, a job, which at that time was not something they could do. And so because of that, they also suffered this idea of how to be okay that they are supposed to be the caregiver for their child. But at the same time, they are gone eight, nine, 10 hours a day doing a job. So they also felt like a failure. And I think it's very important that we look at how these gender roles have, have destroyed both men and women. And that we are all kind of the byproduct of that is we're trying to figure out how we fit in with uh, this idea that I don't have to be the caregiver all the time. My wife and I both work. Yep. 
and I don't have to feel like I'm a loser if my paycheck doesn't cover everything because we have these two incomes that she actually is able to help us move forward. And, yeah. but in the back of my brain, I'm like, but I'm the guy. I'm supposed to do that. And I've done some really shitty things and said, well, you know, I've, I've done that, you know, came in and was like, well, what's for dinner? And she's like, I don't know. I've been working all day. What's for dinner? <laughs> right. So yeah. I, I just want to make sure we, that we, we, we lay that groundwork that it's, it's that women also have same scenarios, the same situations that they are also trying to deal with. Right. Yes. And when, and when what you're able to bring to the table is diminished by cultural expectation, that is a, that is a theft. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because in both cases, when you're talking about like the, the, the question you're answering is not, can I be a provider? The question right. you're answering is, can I love my kids? Yeah. Are we loving Absolutely. our kids? That's yeah. the question you're answering. As a parent, like talking about roles, uh, the culture around you will dictate who plays what roles. But the real question as a parent is, are we loving our kids? And however you get that done, Get that done. That's an area that I think that in particular, it feels like like people in ministry suffer from more. Um, it seems to disproportionately affect. I know that it it bothered my kids. And now that they're all adults, we've talked about this a bunch, but it, I said yes to the church an awful lot. And I said later to them way more often than I should have and prioritized that work over the work of, of being present for my kids. Not that I was an absentee dad, but looking back, there's, yeah, I, I don't do regret. I don't, I'm not one of those guys who looks back and goes, man, I should have, but there, but, but you can still look back and go, yeah, if I had it to do over again, though, I would have said no to a lot more things, but kind of baked into the culture of, of, of vocational ministry is this thing that you really can't say no. The expectation is that you're going to be present all the time for everything. And honestly, it's a big reason why my kids struggle with caring about church, <laughs> you know, in their 20s are like, like, I don't know, man, uh, didn't seem to do us a ton of good. So uh, I got four kids, two of them, you know, do the church thing off and on. The other two are like, yeah, I don't think I'll ever darken the doorstep of one. So, you know, we, we don't just do damage to ourselves, you know, we do damage to, to our kids. And, it, you know, anyway. We do. And the weight, the weight of the job, and one of the stories I get into in the book has to do with working as a pastor in that church. The weight of the job, the, the importance of the job ends up, and I'm using the word job really intentionally, like ends up sealing from like our persons and therefore we can't really do our work. So when you talk about like if, you know, your kids, you know, not you know, experiencing the sort of not like full-blown absentee dad thing, but like that you're saying yes to the church in ways that long-term like, has effect on your family, the work of your life, the broad work of your life was diminished by the weight of the job of pastor. And so part of the, you know, the reason I tell this story is one of the, one of the tricks specifically for folks in work religious contexts is, you know, we feel like because it's a religious thing, it's, it's one, like super unique. So if you work for a Christian publisher, it's this somehow like unique special thing that has more of like the shimmer of the Shekinah glory of the Lord on it than working, you know, for for any other publishing house. But all of that is tied to the idea that like we're building things that long-term last in the eternal sense. And you're just not. Like the church, like how many folks right now who have been living for all these years, giving everything they have, 
saying no to their kids, saying no to themselves, saying no to their own bodies, knowing no to their own health, to like pour into the church this particular thing, have now lost that thing because folks are leaving church left and right. It was never, it, the, the ball game was never to build a church that would last. The ball game was always who you are as a person and the church, the role of pastor was just a way you got to offer yourself. But the job st- like stole that from you, that somehow it was about the pastorate and not about the person who was inhabiting that role. Yeah. We had uh, Terry Wildman on uh, not too long ago. That's, that's wild man to you, sir. Wild, Sorry, wild man. Sorry, Terry Wildman. And he 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 uh he was the head translator, the main translator for the First Nations version of the of the New Testament, and so he talked a little bit about the Native American Church. And then I've read other books about the Native American Church. And what was the most interesting thing that I that I came away with was that the Native American Church, the Native American Christian Church, for the most part, does not have a permanent structure. It's movable. It is where it is at any given moment. It's never meant to be. It's never meant to be permanent, and it's not even meant to be like every Sunday. Uh, it's not. It's not in that. It's it, it's never built itself around the structure of church. And I think one of the reasons that I'm drawn to this idea is that is that exactly. It's never been about how big of a church can we build? Can we make? Can we add another room onto this? Can we make it bigger? It's always been about community and bringing people together and. I find that a lot of churches that I've gone to and a lot of churches we see on, you know, in the news lately about, you know, some of these mega churches and they come out with all these quote unquote secrets of stuff that's going on behind closed doors is because they became too big. They can't control it. And so this idea of, you know, I mean, we, we talk about house church, right? House churches. Uh, but this idea of never, it, it never being about the building, right? It's always being about, like you would say, like, uh, the belovedness of God, or that we are the beloved, or um, that is always that should always take precedence over how big of a building, how many people come into your church, how how much you've grown over the last year, right? And the irony ends up being right, like for for those of us who have been around or participated and even been raised in more in in more like white evangelical spaces, <laughs> it turns out that our, our thing was pretty impermanent, impermanent and movable. Too. Like we didn't think it was because we thought we were building things that were going to last, but that w- that's never what we were doing. And we knew that by, and we knew that for two reasons. The first reason is because it's, it's going away. It's not like, it's not around anymore. Like the number of people who attend anymore, like the number of churches are closing down, like very clearly it wasn't permanent in that way. And the other reason is because the culture around us, the culture th- around the institutional church, specifically white evangelicalism was never asking is this building going to be there 25 years from now and will you be meeting it? That's not what they're asking. What they were asking is, why are you not like the person you talk about when you get together? That's what they're asking. What they're asking is, are, are you actually like the loving Jesus you preach when you're together on Sundays? It was always about who we were becoming as people and not about the thing we made and that would help us become that. And this is that's such a strange little nuanced piece. But this is this is part of why the 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 divorce from divorcing ourselves psychologically from our from our work is so vi- from our jobs is so vitally important. Because the work was never the work was never to build churches, cap lower, you know, small C with an S. 
the job, the the work was to become the church, which has to do with like being inhabited by the person of Christ and inhabiting the character of Jesus. That was always the question. Always. Yeah. And we we lost we lost the work in the job. The only way, literally the only way to get the kind of altitude we would need in order to come to that knowledge is by practicing things like the Sabbath taking that work off the table so that I'm not constantly having it in my face. The way I write in the book, I said, it's one thing to identify with the work you're doing. In fact, I think it's appropriate to feel personally connected to your work. It's another thing entirely to to identify as the work. And as much as I know that's true, and even knew it then, I didn't realize, this is talking about being a pastor, I didn't realize that I'd allowed myself to slip across that sometimes too thin line between I love this thing I do and I am this thing I do. I I liked being a pastor, but I wasn't a pastor. I was a beloved son of the living God living out the best I could, the love of Jesus on behalf of Christ in the lives of other people. That was what I was up to. this is like obviously the the underlining tone of most of this book is about this idea of rest, right? And 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 we use the you use the word Sabbath specifically uh, as, as this idea of rest. But how? Because the church culture that I grew up in, that Nat grew it grew up in, I'm assuming you grew up in Sabbath. That's not what Sabbath meant. Sabbath meant. I'm gonna I'm gonna do Sabbath by going to church and spending right. Sunday morning. Sunday yep. afternoon, yep. Sunday evening, you know, prostrate in front of God, prostrate. No, you were right the first time. <laughs> yeah. In front of God, you know, telling, telling God and everyone around me how horrible of a person I am. That's the, that's what Sabbath meant. So how do, how do we separate that with this idea that you have of Sabbath, which is separating yourself from your job yep. and giving yourself time to decompress, whatever you want to call it, right? How Specifically within church culture, how do you tell people that's not what we're talking about here? We're not talking about going to church from sunrise no, to no. sunset. That's not Sabbath. No, Sabbath not. is separating from the job. And reconnecting with the love of God and the love of the people around you. So, right. like, it's, yeah. so the first the first piece is, is is that it's a practice. It, well, and it's both and, right? It's a commandment, mm-hmm. <laughs> which, is, which is, by the way, this is just bonkers. It's a commandment. It's like it's it's it comes on on the list of commandments. It comes before killing people and stealing things. It comes before adultery. Like, I mean, it comes literally early in the list. It's a commandment. So it's a thing that's not. It's not like, hey, this would be a good idea. It's a commandment, and I think it's a commandment because when we do not, this is what Buchanan was getting after at that retreat. Because when we do not rest from the things that are even v- the most vital and important in our lives, we end up malformed. I will deform myself by working all the time. I'm not designed to work. Long. It's a commandment because my soul is not shaped in such a way that I can do anything. I can work all the time. I'm just not shaped that way. So it's a commandment. The bigger thing for us, though, specifically in the religious, religious culture, is, it, is to recognize that it's a practice. So the Sabbath is not a thing you get right. The Sabbath is a thing you practice over the course of weeks, months, years, decades. And what I learn in the Sabbath is me. I learn who I am. I learn what I need to rest. I learn what it sounds and feels like for me to actually be connected to, to Jesus. I learn what it actually feels, sounds like, looks like for me to like, actually hear from the Lord. I like, 
it's a practice that I learn in rather than a thing I do that, that I get right. Those are the key, th- those are the key bits. Like, so unlike too much religious culture, it's not like, it's not a moralism. It's not like, are you Sabbathing or you're not? Or is it, and if you're not or you are, you're a good or bad person. It's a practice by which you come to an understanding of who you are, who you are in Christ, who Christ is in you. It's a long, long, long practice. That's the biggest, is recognizing that it's a practice. The other part of it, as a practice, last bit, as a practice, um, and this is probably the hardest part of it, is having this, is as a practice, uh, having the self-awareness and uh, to, to be in it as a practice. And here's what I mean. If you're a professional athlete and you go out and you've got a coach who says um, your second step, like let's say you play third base, your second step when you pick the ball up is a little too, it's, it's a little long. And that's why, that's why the ball keeps sailing high on the first baseman. If that's what your coach says, you don't go out there as a professional athlete. You don't go out there the first time be like, you just shorten your step. Cause you've been doing the, the same damn way for 26 years and your body needs time to like rethink and you have to be self humble and self-aware and be like, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing and I've got to learn. So first it's how do we, how do we learn to do this thing? First, like, first of all, it's a commandment, like embrace the fact this is a commandment. <laughs> he says like, don't kill people. Do not steal their shit. Like honor your, <laughs> father and mother. honor your father and mother, take a day off. Like it's in there. Like, like, can we just embrace that as a culture and recognize that we've been remarkably disobedient as an American church culture for 55 years. And that's part of why we are as malformed as we are. Just own it. Just own it. There's no way around that. Secondly, embrace it as a practice. Like, let's learn to do this thing. And as we embrace it as a practice, know that you don't know what the hell you're doing. Know that you don't know how to, confess to yourself and to the people around you. I don't know what it actually feels like to to know myself as a rested, beloved person. I don't know. I'm going to have to figure that out. That's that's the hard, weird pathway forward. Yeah, but you only get better at that by repetition, by repetition, by repetition, right? Even when, because I guarantee you, I guarantee you the second baseman feels awkward as hell for the first hundred thousand times he does that new move until it becomes... Bro, I got a guy, one of my best friends, a guy who coaches professional athletes, this is part of why I bring this up, he coaches batters. And one of the guys, I won't name names because I don't want to sound like a douchebag, but the, the, real, <laughs> the reality, one of the guys he coaches is like a, like is a phenomenal hitter in baseball. And he had these two years where he had like, he was, his 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 numbers have fallen off, his power is falling off. And my buddy got a hold, got in touch to him and said, I think I can help you. And that third season like was was not great and it got worse. And he was, he was like, this sucks, man. You're supposed to help me. He's like, give it time. He said, first of all, like you, you, you're in your mid thirties now. And so your body's not what it was when you were in your twenties. So you cannot swing the bat. You, the, you swing the bat the same way you did when you were 17. Like it's been too long. You have to readjust your body. That fourth season, his numbers jumped and he's in his last two seasons, two and a half seasons coming into the season. Some of the best seasons he's had as a professional. It took a whole professional athlete a whole year of doing it poorly before he saw any kind of improvement. Man, we just lack that kind of humility as people of as people in in, in American religious culture. But that's what's being asked of us by the Spirit of Christ right now in the moment: is come practice th- this thing, get well, we'll be okay long term. Right, right. Just get well. I, yeah, it strikes me that you know amongst amongst the critiques that you know if you read through the Gospels, Jesus has the harshest critiques we all know for the Pharisees. And I think and and you know one of one of the sayings that pops into my head is that Jesus telling 
telling them that they weren't made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath was made for them. So I don't, I think this is not a recent issue. I think this is a, uh, is a human issue of taking something like the Sabbath and then deciding, well, now we have a commandment. Let's codify it. Let's, now let's turn, let's turn even rest into a, into a, a critique of our performance. How well can we rest? Let me give you the hundred rules and the things you can't do while you're resting and you spend more time and energy worried about the thing you're not supposed to be doing because you're trying to impress a God who said, no, the point is to chill. <laughs> well, and the, the, you turn everything into a moralism because even, I mean, this is like, this will be, be scandalous for some folks, but I don't really care. Let it rip, like, man. We love scandal. Like, like the commandments, to, the, the commandments about adultery and theft and murder aren't, uh, watch me now, aren't just because like adultery, theft and murder are wrong, so don't do them. It's because if you fucking kill people, it hurts everybody. Like, the, exactly the point. Good for you. It's, ex- it's very clear. Like if you're killing people, it's bad for everybody. Like, so don't. It's about your health. It's not, it's not, it's not your health. It's about the wholeness. It's about like living. If you steal people's stuff, it's not just bad to steal. You've just diminished the populace in the same way that you're committing adultery. You're breaking your promises. You're no longer trustworthy person. All of the, all of the commandments, literally all the commandments are for the betterment and the wholeness of the people who are supposed to obey them. And we make them, we make them into moralisms by which we judge people. As opposed to gifts, as opposed to gifts by which people come yeah. into health, the Sabbath quite literally is the one that, if we were to practice, unlocks the whole thing. Because then we recognize ourselves as if I stand still and do nothing, give God literally fifty-two days of the best I've got in my world, I will be met by this God who loves me. He'll hold my life together. And I'll, and out of that belovedness, I'll be able to enter back into a world in which like, I'm not, I don't have the same propensities to kill that guy or to steal this person's stuff or become someone I'm not supposed to do, I'm not supposed to be. I mean, when Jesus sums up the law, he says what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And I, I used to say this to, uh, to kids when I was a youth pastor and I was scandalous and like, it's kind of hard to love your neighbor when you're killing him and stealing his shit. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Stop it. But you know, the, 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 at the end of the day, if, if we're concerned, so moral, moralism always, always presumes a God who is, who is offended by your bad acts. Yes. That's the deal. So the things that God says are bad are, well, they're bad because he says so. And because rather than, man, God sets some things off limits for you because they hurt you and they hurt the people around you. That's it. So how about, how about, how about we focus in on the, on that part of it, not the violation of some arbitrary holiness code and say, well, that's silly. And we spend too much time using the, the 10 commandments. And the reason there's such a harsh, harsh critique of them at all is because all they've been turned into is a, a way to point at other people and tell them how bad they are. As, as opposed to becoming who we're supposed to be so that we might love one another well. And as, and as we love one another well, we honor the God who made us all. We'd much rather point fingers. Well, it's it's more fun to judge, even though we were like specifically told not to. Um, oh, wait a minute, that, well, that's in the Bible too. Stop the judging people. Stop, <laughs> yeah. stop judging but people. Stop killing people. That's stop taking their shit. Approaching the topic of of, of Sabbath keeping, one through the doorway of work. That I'm not. I'm not coming through the doorway of like. I'm not this like sit on a mountain guru. Um, a, a, a contemplative cat who's like, here's here's the pathway. I'll need to stop working. No, like I love I love my job and I love I love the work I get to do because of my job. I'm a huge fan. I work my ass off because I love to. 
I, I come, so first of all, I come through that door. But second, like I approach the topic through the doorway of narrative because I want folks to see, like, what's this look like? I, I don't have commandments or, or teachings. I have these stories of me coming in contact with, with Christ in work and in rest so that we might lovingly come back in contact with him in both these settings. That's why I wrote the book the way I wrote it. So that I'm not, we don't need any more books to like make us feel crappy about what we're not able to accomplish. We don't need any more books to make us feel crappy about how much we're not able to pray. We need to see each other yeah, exactly. and see ourselves in the stories of the people who write these books. So that's why I did it. Yeah. And I, I'm going to go, I'll circle back to the whole belovedness thing because I have, I, I have to believe that when Jesus says that, you know, when he invites people to come to him, and says, listen, all of you who are heavy burdened, you know, come to me and you'll find rest. It has to be, come to me, and, and the rest you're going to find is the rest that you are beloved, and the things that you do don't make you more or less beloved. So let's take that off the table, right? Let's get away from this whole, and, and that's like especially applicable to the 21st century Western church, because so much of what we do is predicated on earning our place in all of this. Um, I somehow need yes. to impress God. I need to you know, be, be deserving of the things I've been given. There's no rest in that. Dovetails with what I used to tell kids back in the day. I, w- I was a pretty decent youth pastor, actually. And I'm like, listen, you, God, God does not love you more or less based on the things you do or don't do. I mean, his, his attitude towards you is unflinching and unwavering. This is how he feels about you. You don't do things so that God will pay attention to you. You do them out of a recognition that God has done for you. And so, and that's, that's the whole ballgame. That's, that's it. You work because you know you you, you work be, because you know that the God who loves you wants to, wants you to work in the world, wants to offer Himself right. to the world through you. In other words, like people who, and we'll say this, right? Like you, you get a room of youth pastors or pastors or religious workers of any kind in, in a room, and you go to the, get on the stage and get on the microphone. And you're like, does God need you? No one's got like because we're good moralists and and we're good theologians. No one's going to say yes. Does God need you to accomplish God's ends? Yes. God's got this plan for the world. Does God need you? Everyone's going to say no. No, God does need you. Why is it, do you think then God invited you into this work? Do you think God invited you because it needs to get done? Or maybe like a loving father, God said, I'm going to build this fence. (laughs) I just want you to do it with me because you're going to love it. You're going to grow and I want you with me. How about that? As as one who leans towards open and relational theism, that's my deal. Fall kind of in line with guys like Thomas Orden. Anyway, I would say to that question, does God need you? Yeah. Because without the hands and feet of human beings doing the things, God doesn't act and does not act by fiat. He does not go good. through the world and act independently. He works through you and me. And so that that's that's, that's I'm 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 coming more and more to grips with that idea. You know, because there, there was this sort of laissez-faire attitude in the churches that I've been involved in over the years that like, well, eh, if we don't do it, somebody else will. If we don't, then God will. I remember I had a pastor, uh, well, a few things I remember him saying. It was really good. But he had this uh, he had this story he liked to tell about two o'clock in the morning, something. He wakes up and hears rain starting to pitter-patter outside, right? And uh, he remembers suddenly that he'd been working in the backyard with some power tools and he had not put them away. And so he says, I prayed, dear Lord, please protect my power tools from the rain. And he says, I heard God, the way that God talks to me say, I help you with the things you can't do, not the things you won't do. I think there are God, I think there are things that are hundred percent the purview of God that he can alone do. And then we, and that's the, and that's why we pray. 
but the rest of the time we're praying for opportunities to participate with him in the world. How do I do this with you? How do I conspire with you to do good things? And I, you know, and that's the work I want to be involved in, right? And again, not out of any sense of obligation or duty or somehow that God will, I'll turn God's head and go, oh, hey, you know, I don't, I don't want to be Job, you know, I don't want God bragging on me to the devil because that opens up a whole fucking can of worms. Like, hey, have you noticed, yeah. have you noticed my servant? Ned? He's a pretty good dude. Hey, let me give him cancer and see how the hell he feels about you. Okay. That's a yeah. shitty story, by the way. <laughs> but it's, it's a rough story. But no, I, I, I love it, man. There's, 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 I think it's a, uh, I think it's a more than timely message. And I think especially, let me, let me, let me, let me blow a little more smoke for you because I think especially now, as we're, I think, in this sort of deconstructive phase of, of, and people are open to the idea of reimagining what church can look like. Because they either have to reimagine it or for a lot of us, we abandon it altogether. It either has to be different or it has to go away. So if there's an opportunity to come in and breathe some life into it and say, listen, let's, if we're going to try this again, let's at least make sure and get this part right. Yeah. Let's at least make sure that we don't just fall into the same patterns that we have always fallen into. I, I, man, I think it's great. That's my that, and you're you're spot on, man. That's 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 my hope. Like we're gonna there there are women and men who on the other side of this really really tough season are gonna want to build spaces and churches. Are gonna want to do the thing, and I want to be one of the folks who helps them do that well who helps them do that wisely, who helps them do that lovingly, but more so than all of that, well, I guess accompanying all, you know, above and beyond all that, holding it all together, do that out of an act of, like this is an act of love. We don't need, no one around you, literally your neighbors are not screaming like, my God, I hope someone plants a church in the neighborhood. No one's asking. Amen, amen to that, brother. But, but if you were to build a sense of community, belovedness, a community belonging, a sense of purpose, and a place where people could reflect on the deepest questions of their lives without any sort of judgment, everyone in your neighborhood would want, would want to be a part of yeah. that. So you, if you can act in a can action out of a posture of love and belovedness and a lack of control, like that's what I'm hoping to help folks do with books like this and beyond. Yeah. Well, I, I think you, you said this kind of throughout this conversation. One of the things that churches seem to do that ends up being their failure is they always build a church as if they're always going to be relevant forever. And so they don't, they don't have, they don't have to acknowledge their misgivings or their mistakes because they are God, divine, whatever. They're, they're supposed to be here and they, they just build on that. And I think one of the things that I, that I, that I get from you is that you almost need to live in a world where your church is not permanent. And, and you need to live as if tomorrow your church could implode. And, and it, it will end. Like, I mean, it's one of the things that the Sabbath practice does is it, is it, is it forces us not just to, to embrace and recognize, to recognize, but to embrace and in fact celebrate our limitations. Our limitations are not problematic. The fact that you have an end, the fact that you have the end of energies, you have the end of wisdom, you have the energy, you know, the fact that you have limits, that's not a problem industrial culture wants to make you feel like because you're not a machine, that's problematic. Right. What the gospel says is the gospel says that you are actually created as a human being with limitations. The Sabbath is a practice of my limitations in which I recognize my belovedness as a limited person so that I can then build things that I know have limits. 
this has a limit. This can only reach so many people and then we're done. It'll only last so long and then it'll be done. And that's not a problem with the thing. It's probably, in fact, part of its glory. Just like part of your glory is that you have a birth, you live so long, and then you die and you're done. You live with limitations. It's part of what makes you a glorious person. Part of what makes culture glorious is that we know that it has a time and we have it for a season and then it's gone. The Sabbath unlocks that for us so that we can work in a sense of freedom. Stop trying to build things that last forever. Just build things that are beautiful for now in front of you. Well, and to bring it kind of full circle to the, the, the story you write about your dad and then going to his memorial, if your dad had believed the things that were said about him at his memorial, as opposed yeah. to the way he felt that by his, his, yep. the business that he ran that failed was that was, that was his biography, right? That he was a failure. But then these people start telling stories about how he helped them through whatever, right? If he could have bought on, bought into that version of his story, yep. how much better would it have been, right? Yep. And that's, a, and, that's what, and that's what we do. We, we buy into our own version of our failure as opposed to the people that we have changed and helped throughout their lives, right? Yep. And we don't notice, and because of that, we don't notice the thing. When, when, we, when we bank on the stuff we're building lasting forever and we make it about the thing itself, we miss the people in the thing. It's, it's, I mean, it's literally that cliche thing is like we miss the journey. We miss the people who we're on the journey with. But that was always what it was for. I mean, when you talk to folks about why they don't like their church or the churches they went to anymore, it's because they felt like a cog in the wheel. They felt like a piece of machinery, a piece in the machinery, and no one wanted to feel that way. But in the spaces where people still feel connected to the church, it's because they don't want to live their lives without those other people. If they stop meeting on Sundays, they don't care. Some of the healthiest church communities in the country right now are people who for two years didn't meet on Sundays, but kept connected over text and Zoom and like because they were just living alive because they recognized that the gift of the thing was who they were together in it. Their limitations forced them in a place to recognize the belovedness that was holding the community together. Man, that's, it's really good. I, I appreciate everything you've said. I uh, Again, the, the book is called Sacred Strides. Maybe someday you'll, you'll let us know what the secret title is. Maybe you should inscribe it on the inside cover. <laughs> I'll, send you, I'll send you a copy with it. I'll, I'll mark just, out. Just the mark copy. it out and put the, yeah. Duct tape it yeah. and write it on this there. Is, this is the one. Um, the uh, the permanence of impermanence. Oh, so. That's it. <laughs> I, I do like it though. You've actually given me some, you've done what good guests on our podcast always do, uh, which is give me more to think about. You know, I, I usually walk away from these conversations and go, Okay, there's some there's some stuff there that I, I that. that I like and some stuff that resonates and man, I appreciate that. So uh, May 30th, the book comes out. Go to your local bookstore if you can. Um, if you don't have that, go ahead and give Jeff, Be- Jeff Bezos your money. I guess do what you got to do. <laughs> we live and die by the Amazon algorithms. I get it, but being being book nerds, John and I, we 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 love local bookstores. Um, they're just becoming more and more infrequent. Yeah, buy the book. I'm sure there'll be, hopefully there'll be an audio version at some point for people like me who, uh, yep. who, who That's love part to. part of what I'm doing this week. Oh, nice, nice. So that'd be great. So, are you, are you, re- are you reading it yourself? I'm reading it myself. Great. I love that. I always like that when, when authors do that, when they can, you know, I understand it's not always, not always feasible. Some authors shouldn't read their books. I was literally just going to say, I was just going to say, I listened to a book by someone the other day. I was like, like nope. man, I wish you would have got someone else to do this, homie, because I like, I like what you're saying. I don't like the way you're saying it. <laughs> all right. Hey, again, man, thanks so much. We appreciate you coming by. We'll link to all your, 
We'll link to all your stuff in the show notes. Make sure that people have a way to contact you and look at all your stuff online and whatever and buy your book and put you on the New York Times bestseller list or something, man. That'd be great. Good. I'm in. We've, do, we've done it once. We can do it again, John. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Some point she's going to come after us and say, you guys got to stop she, talking. I, I keep baiting her. That's what I'm doing this for. So maybe she'll be like, hey, I need to clear the air. Y'all didn't do nothing. All right, fine. <laughs> Kristen Dumay, the uh, gauntlet has been thrown down. Prove we did not like <laughs> launch your book into the best of the list. So. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.